Welcome to Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast. Learn firsthand from business owners who built successful ABA businesses. Utilize proven techniques and strategies to help your practice thrive. This is Building Better Businesses, an ABA podcast with Jonathan Mueller. LeBlanc is the president of LeBlanc Behavioral Consulting. She's been a professor at Claremont McKenna College, Western Michigan University, and Auburn University. And she was executive director at Trumpet Behavioral Health. She's an author, publishing more than 100 articles and book chapters. She's the editor of JABA. And Linda has single-handedly taught me so much of what I know about ABA. So she's not just a guest. She's not just a colleague. She is a dear, dear friend. Linda, welcome to the pod. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. This is going to be fun. And, um, you know, we go way back and I can remember us working together and you being very new to this kind of human services space and kind of just trying to distill and download everything that's been happening over the decades. And, um, and now look how far you've come. It's amazing. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. You know, I was like an ABA baby, if you will, when we first met. It wasn't every, it's like dog years, every year in ABA is like a seven years. So I think I'm 70, I don't know, 77 years old at this point. But uh, good for 70. Thank you. Thank you. I, I you know, one of, um, there, there are uh, many extraordinary things that I love about you. Um, but I want to, I want to share just like a little anecdote about like one of my fondest memories. You know, I, when we were both at Trumpet, um, I was supporting our um, uh, Bay Area clinical teams. And so you would go out periodically and we'd both get on this flight together, like a five, literally a 5 a.m. flight. And we'd be oh, boarding right. at like, I don't know, it's, or it, we'd be boarding at like 4 a.m. It was ridiculous. And you would have like an entire day of training set up that you were doing, all, all team presentations. You were doing consults back to back. I mean, from like, and we were getting in at 8.30 in the morning and going to like eight at night. I mean, you, you had this chock-a-block schedule. I was there to just sort of goof off and do whatever. But I'll never forget, like I, 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 I sat down in my seat on the plane and it's like 4.15 in the morning and I hear someone speaking French in a Duolingo and you are walking down the aisle practicing your French because you just were, you're a lifelong learner and you model this so powerfully. Like, and Linda, like, what does it take to cultivate this mindset and the behaviors of being a lifelong learner? Well, I am, um, gosh, that's such a good question. And oh my gosh, those flights were so early. Um, I, I, you know, you helped tremendously being on those kinds of visits because of your positivity and energy. But um, for me, it was important to still be learning something. And I think this is something that probably a lot of CEOs, chief clinical officers, C-suite people, um, you know, they say you don't want to be the smartest person in the room. You want to be surrounded by smart people. And that is absolutely true. But there are lots of times when you are the most experienced person mm -hmm. in the room and you are the person that everyone is looking to for mm -hmm. answers and guidance and what have you, which is which is great. You just have to be ready 
to be in those shoes. And one of the things that was nice for me about doing something like, you know, practicing my French, even if I'm just saying, sir, I would like a baguette, <laughs> is <laughs> I got to be the learner. I got mm. to be the one trying out something that I might not be that good at yet. And for some people, that's a little scary um, mm -hmm. to like, you know, we get so good at things. We achieve expert status at things and it can almost be aversive to suddenly mm. not be good at things. I think that's why a lot of people like, <laughs> you know, in sixth grade band or whatever, I played the clarinet and I'm sure I was just horrible, even though, you know, at one point I was first year, I was just stinking horrible objectively, but I was more okay being objectively bad at something when I was, you know, a middle schooler. I'm mm. not now. So for me, you said, what's that about? How do you cultivate it? I honestly think you have to just be okay with not knowing everything and not being great at something yet. Mm. And if you can find it exciting to be pulling new stuff in, like, wow, I didn't know that. Um, even if it's as simple as when I go shopping in Paris, I am going to be better <laughs> equipped, which that's not actually simple. That's fantastic <laughs> and aspirational. But um, to me, like, that's what really sets someone up to embrace lifelong learning. And I still do practice my French every day. And um, once I rotate off as editor of Java, I plan to take a class at the community college in conversational French. And it'll be good to be getting better at it, right? Absolutely. And, and maybe you're not going to be that best student in the conversational French class, but that takes vulnerability, right? Which I think is really hard for CEOs because you are, and especially in a time of COVID, right? You have been on point with your teams and, you know, you've had to be support. You've had to be everything to them. And so to admit, hey, I'm okay going off to do something else that I'm not as proficient at, that vulnerability is hard, isn't it? Yes, it really is. Um, and, but I think like hard things are what keep us engaged and excited. We don't want everything to be hard. <laughs> right. And one of the things about becoming really expert at something is that it kind of makes those things mostly easier. Mm. So to me, the place that energizes me is when I'm trying something new, doing something I haven't done before or learning. And so. Mm. It just makes it whatever the learning is, a new recipe, another language, writing a book for the first time. If I haven't done it before, I'm going to have to figure out how to do it. And I never want those chops to get weak. Yeah. I mean, it's the I um, I love. And by the way, you cook amazing boudin, um, which is <laughs> a, a delicacy. So you are a chef as well. But um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I think like Einstein said, right. If we're not learning, we're dying uh, or something to that effect. Um, so that's powerful to hear it <laughs> coming from you, Linda, but you know, there's, we hear in our field these days, all this talk about, um, you know, distinctions between being a quote unquote supervisor versus coach versus a mentor versus whatever. Um, but tell me like, how do you feel about, or, or think about those distinctions? 
Yeah, I do think, well, I think for a long time, nobody was talking about any of those words. <laughs> and so <laughs> I'm kind of excited that people are talking about them, even if there's a little bit of yang yeah, yeah back and forth about this word versus that word. You know, I, anyone who thinks of me in any of those terms is probably evidence that I did something right. And um, I think the distinctions are sometimes about portions of mm -hmm. what you do. So for example, um, the notion of a coach versus a supervisor, well, if you think of them as things, are you a supervisor, stick in the noun? Are you a coach, stick in the noun? We get a little bit more wound up about those distinctions. If you mm. think about it as behavior, are you supervising this person? Are you coaching them? Are you mentoring them? Are you teaching them? You begin to see how many of your behaviors that are great things to be doing could also resonate with the word, are you leading them? Are you following them, guiding them, what have you? And so, you know, I think we tend to use those words. They become more important when you're not the whole package. Mm. When you're kind of in a certain role and you want to speak only about that role. For example, there are people in our field who I don't have a direct supervisory relationship. There was a point at which I had a supervisory relationship with you and I was one of your supervisors. Um, that said, if we walked onto a baseball field, you'd probably be coaching me, <laughs> you know, and uh, and hopefully if if the relationship has become discretionary mm. and it is still valuable and desirable and there is some kind of learning and guidance and wisdom sharing, then I think mentorship and the word mentor really comes to put into play. And I you know, it's not the only way to define it, but when you think of the people who have been in your life, who've influenced you, shaped how you operate, let's say in your professional world, personal world, and you still want them around, and you know if you ever need them, you can mm. go to them, and they know you well enough and care about you enough that you know your best interests will be their interest. Hmm. Perhaps they have a different knowledge or experience. They can give you guidance. That's when you have someone who's a mentor. And so, you know, you mentioned that I was a professor at a lot of programs and then an executive director. Um, I can't necessarily know if all of those people think of me as a mentor, but hmm. I hope many of them do. Yeah. I, I, I think it's really powerful how you describe like the, these leadership or supervisory categories are not as important as the supervisory behaviors 
that you engage in. Um, that's, yeah, that's powerful. And, you know, thinking about mentors, I mean, you and, and, and Dr. Tyra Sellers, Dr. Alai, you wrote a book called Building and Sustaining Meaningful and Effective Relationships as a Supervisor and Mentor. I mean, it's an absolutely seminal work. And I, the, there, there's so much that's, that's amazing in it. But the one exercise that I've always come back to in my career um, is the mentor tree. I think it's in like chapter, I don't know what, two or three. Can you take us through that mentor tree exercise and why you felt it was so important to include in the book? Absolutely. I, um, that exercise is one that's near and dear to me. And my co-author, Dr. Shala Alai Rosales and I um, came up with that idea. We had, you know, we had never presented together. We knew each other. Um, but, and, and we were, you know, our relationship as colleagues were, were growing and we wanted to do something together. And I think either she got an invitation or I got an invitation to give a workshop at one of our conferences, Calava. And so whoever got the invitation, we reached out to the other and said, Hey, I see you're going to be there as well as a speaker. Do you want to do this workshop with me? Let's put it together. Let's kind of try to pull together some of what each of us knows about supervision. Mm. And um, and I had never given any kind of workshop on supervision before. Um, it just it I was doing supervision, but that notion of distilling what it's important to do, why you do it, how someone can learn to do it. Like that's a whole lot harder than just doing, you know? Um, <laughs> and so um, as we were preparing for that workshop, we came up with the idea of the mentor tree. Mm -hmm. And it came from us kind of talking about how fortunate we had been through our careers to have had these amazing people invest in us, teach us, coach us, mentor us, tolerate us, <laughs> um, uh, uh, sponsor us for opportunities, mm -hmm. you know, write us letters of recommendation, just, and also just like, at least for me, uh, just like, keep it on the rails, you know, like right, LeBron. Right. Rain it in. What about this? Be focused, you know. Um, and we were really thinking about, you know, how all of those those people, those learning opportunities and those experiences really they all combine to make you this living, growing. Mm -hmm. And if you think of yourself as a supervisor, as a living, growing thing, that's really kind of part of an ecosystem that really speaks to people who've taught you or influencing you. But they're also influencing the people you teach mm -hmm. or the people that you interface with. And so mm -hmm. this is really a reflection. Well, I'm going to say, hopefully, it's a reflection and gratitude activity where you really think through the roots of the tree being all of those, like before you even knew you wanted to be on anything except mm -hmm. like an adult, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> you know, if I can't avoid it. But from early on, those 
values, the the things that resonate with you. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, I know you lived um, all over the world and your, your parents were uh, diplomats and it really established for you you know, you could say what it established, but from my perspective, it's part of why you're adventurous. It's mm-hmm. part of why you are excited to learn about different communities and experiences mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And it's probably partly why you're one of the friendliest people I know. You <laughs> can show up and immediately connect with people. And um, so those kinds of experiences and values, they shouldn't get erased by Mm -hmm. your professional training and career. They should be maybe pruned and enhanced Mm -hmm. and built upon. Then the trunk of the tree represents those people who influenced you really in your primary professional training. And so for Mm -hmm. a lot of people that I work with, This might be your professors, your supervisors, your kind of first um, bosses for, Mm -hmm. you know, working kind of in this field. And um, for me, it was also people who helped me become a researcher. That's a really hard Mm -hmm. repertoire. And someone has to invest in you to make you really good and capable Mm -hmm. and independent of that. Mm-hmm. And then the branches of the tree represent all of those different areas where mm-hmm. you can grow, things you can do, interests you can explore. And, you know, once we've got our whatever it is, degree, credential, you've got an MBA, you know, that's not the end of growth okay. and change in some ways, like that's where the beautiful stuff starts. When we look Mm. at the tree, you know, very often our eyes are drawn to the the breadth of the branches and Mm. the branches grow where the sun and the uh, brings them, right? And attracts Mm. them. And then a recent part of that is the acorns. So that is, that's the next generation of trees. Who are you supervising, mentoring, growing, and how do you want to do that? So the activity, I think the gratitude part is as you're writing down these names and what they taught you and how they built you, how they helped to create you, Hmm. you know, there are no perfect relationships there's good bad the whole thing but it all helped to make you you and i think that the goal is to understand why Mm. you are the supervisor that you are why you approach your world the way you do and with that understanding you start to be able to kind of prune the tree a little bit Mm. um you know you can make some choices about, well, I get where that comes from, (laughs) from early on or from that boss or that supervisor, but I can, I can understand why I might be prone to behave that way. 
Mm. But make an active choice to try to do things differently. So that activity, it's kind of reflection and gratitude, but then it should set you up to have some kind of purposefulness about the leader that you want to be. That is such a rich analogy, dare I say fecund, fertile analogy. That is, <laughs> I, it's, you know, what, the way I think about like as a, as, a, as, a, as a leader in our field, as a supervisor, you know, there's a lot of discretionary effort that we have to spend, you know, thinking, training our, our, our supervisees, um, investing in them, getting to know them, um, you know, meeting with them at, at, at certain frequencies. And it can be easy to say, ah, oh, it's exhausting, but what this, and I've done this exercise so many times, the, the wisdom tree, um, uh, the mentor tree, like looking back and saying, I know that gratitude of, I know those people invested all this time in me, in my world changed to, okay, I now need to pay it forward to it's the next generation, acorns. The, acorns, the acorns, that's the acorns. And I, I, the, I, I love that addition of the acorns and I learned something new as you described that one. That, that's, that's wonderful. I love it. Well, the mentor tree is important and it actually shows up in the, again, in the two new workbooks mm. that my colleague Tyra Sellers and I um, are, are just publishing. Uh, one of them is for brand new BCBA supervisors mm-hmm. who, you know, they've been learning the behavior analysis, but the supervision is also a rich repertoire and nobody's graded it coming out of the gate. And so it's a workbook that kind mm-hmm. of guides their efforts and then a parallel workbook for the more experienced consulting supervisor who's maybe been out five years and maybe has a little bit more of those skill sets and wisdom to kind of guide their consultation over the course of a year, Mm. um, focused specifically on those supervision skills. Ah, and I know that very recently came out. We'll make sure to drop a link in the show notes. Um, uh, but I, I appreciate that you're continuing to share your wisdom with our field. But you've like you've you've operated across so in so many different capacities um, in in our field, from being a professor to a practitioner to an editor, uh, an editor to a leader of a large multi-state organization. Um, and for the last five years, you've owned your own consulting practice. Um, tell me more about your practice and, and in particular, like what were the needs that you saw in the field that you felt like you could solve and, um, you know, just generally how you've built it and what gets you most excited to wake up every morning? Yeah, that's a fantastic set of questions. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, so you mentioned I've done a lot of different things and that harkens back a little bit to the. I like to try new things and really, really do them until I'm good at them. And then I need to add on a little bit of something new to Mm. really stay engaged. You know, Mm. I've got, um, and I know you do too, like a little bit of that Tigger preschooler (laughs) in me, you know, like, what a squirrel. And So making these kinds of, maybe you would call them career changes, lane changes, 
or adding on something new. So like being the editor of Java is um, just the next step, the next responsibility in editorial work that I've always done. Um, but I think when I started my practice, which is now, let's call it, again, it'll be six years um, late this fall. So we'll call it five and a half years. Um, yeah, you know, part of it was that I wanted something new. I, um, I had a, a couple of different sets of interests. Obviously, one of them is human services and a variety of disability services and, and behavior analysis. Another was um, technology. Mm -hmm. uh, throughout my career as a researcher, and I have always been interested in technology and how we can use technology to enhance uh, other domains. So I'm not necessarily interested in the guts of the technology per se. I have no skills in that, but I really like to think through how we can design technology to maybe make me a better psychologist or make you yeah. a better CEO. Um, so that notion of what should we be looking at and how can we use technology to get the right things in front of people at the right time to make them more effective, that one, that's always been very interesting to me. And in the job that I was in, which was so fulfilling from a people and impact perspective, it was just super busy. And so there wasn't as much time and opportunity for that kind of diversity of interest. So I set up my consulting company and I kind of had the notion to bring together things that I really liked and was mm -hmm. pretty good at and hope someone valued that. And some of that was kind of how to run and set up clinical quality systems in mm -hmm. human service organizations and systems pretty much anywhere. Another part of it was this technology within um, behavior analysis space. And then mm -hmm. the third area was higher education. Mm. So those are the three kinds of clients that I've had over the last five to six years. Um, sometimes it is ABA provider organizations and they want me to help them um, sometimes create resources, sometimes refine their system, sometimes build them from scratch. Uh, mm. help build their clinical leaders um, in a variety of skill sets. Um, I've had multiple clients that were technology companies, um, mm. certainly in our space. And then also I, I work with a provider that um, they create um, a software to help people who are recovering from mm -hmm um alcohol and uh other substance use uh, disorders and um and then i've been fortunate recently um to build a fully online master's program kind of leveraging technology and instructional design 
to do some of the teaching that I've always loved without it having to be a recurrent mm. on my time. So um, I'll, to be honest with you, uh, probably about 70% of what I do is spending time with C-suite folks from mm. um, different organizations coaching them, supervising them, mentoring them. Mm. I am not accountable for their behavior. So supervising <laughs> is not the right term, but really helping them to uh, leverage and enhance how they think about things, how they solve problems, mm. uh, how they manage what their role is like for them and what barriers it can create. Mm. Um, and very often to be a sounding board and a little bit of a poke, poke prod um, when there's no one else in their professional life who can do that. Yeah. Well, I, you, you mentioned systems and, you know, I think back to our time at Trump and you literally built out this phenomenal, I mean, as, as far as I'm aware, like this is the first clinical standard set, a, a system around quality assurance that, that the ABA field has ever seen. But I'm curious, as you're working with different um, providers or practices that might be experiencing challenges or whatever they're trying to do, like how many times is the answer like, you kind of need a system? Mostly always. <laughs> like 90 plus percent of the time, it's, yeah, maybe taking some good things that they have and really formulating it into a system. Mm or helping them to recognize that they don't have much yet. So mm. they might as well from the ground up build the system. And, you know, when um, there are lots of ways to talk about systems, human systems, when once mm -hmm. people get in the mix, boy, then it gets scary. <laughs> then the fun starts. <laughs> yeah, it's all fun and games until you introduce the human factor. Um, but, you know, what I really try to do is help people think about lots of different aspects of their company and the systems that they could build that would give them assurance that they know who is doing what, mm. when, how, and how well. Mm. And same thing is true whether you're looking at your financials you know, or you're looking at um, caseload management and quality of clinical services. We, you have to have the structure to know who's supposed to do be doing these things and who might be managing or supporting them. What are all the things that they need to be doing? And is there an important win? Mm -hmm. They should do it. And there's almost always an important win. And that often, like not paying attention to the win is often what creates the next person's pain point. <laughs> mm. you know, I, I didn't get that done at the right time. So you couldn't do your thing. And, um, and then of course, um, how would we know it was done and how would we know how well it was done? And those are the parts I think mm. that really allow you to close the loop that most organizations and and certainly I didn't have either at, at a trumpet, you build it over time, but it's that notion of those checks and balances, right? 
um, not viewing internal auditing and quality assurance as a bad thing, but really as your safety net of, you know, if it's not happening the way that it should, there's almost always a reason. There's some kind of barrier to Mm. someone being able to do it well. Maybe no one's told them that they need to do it a certain way or at a certain time. So those final portions are the part of the system that really help you know when you need to lather, rinse, repeat, right? Iterate it, process map it, problem solve it, improve it. So for me, um, systems are living things and they are either evolving or they are dying. You have to tend to nurture them much like that tree, right? Mm -hmm. You plant the tree, grow it, and then stop the water, sunshine, et cetera. Um, The same thing is true with any of our systems. If you built a dashboard now and never got regular updated data, you'd be like trying to drive backwards. And it could also be that the kinds of metrics that you want on your dashboard evolve over time when you get really good at managing something such that it's you know pretty much on autopilot or you can even delegate the monitoring of that metric to someone else's dashboard that gives you space Mm -hmm. to have more things on your dashboard that really are the critical metrics the Mm -hmm. levers that can drive your success and so you have to constantly be revisiting it, redesigning it, um, evolving it. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, we've, and I've seen this at Ascend, like every time you double in size, uh, triple in size, like all systems break, right? And so systems are not static. They must be, to your point, evolving and growing. It's that whole like Kaizen concept of continuous improvement. Um, and that's a really important approach to systems. And there are a lot of different components to systems, right? Um, from process mapping to, as you point out, like, you know, how do you, how do you monitor effectiveness and uh, the quality against them? But, you know, one of the concepts that you taught me um, was around uh, task analyses, right? And, um, and I'll actually never forget, Linda, I think at one point I was, uh, we, we were talking about like, where do you have to draw the line on like, how detailed do you have to get for someone? The conversation basically went to, well, you shouldn't have to write a task analysis for someone to put their pants on in the morning. And I'll have you know, that um, when COVID started uh, and we were all uh, remote for training, um, we had to put a task analysis together for put your pants on in the morning and make sure you're showing up with pants because we might ask you to move around on the video. So anyway, a little part of me like was excited and then a little part of me died when that we'll happened. will be there, never make a rule and assume it isn't going to change because at some point yeah, you might have to... <laughs> You oh. might at least have to remind people that pants are required. Right? That's right. Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, well, um, man. You mentioned also that notion of like, how did I get it started? And, mm. and you know, for me, it was wanting to have some of those various influences. But another part of it, too, was. Um, you know, as the owner of a large human service organization, I really felt so much responsibility to all of those families, to mm-hmm. all of those team members. 
Um, I was pouring myself into trying to build systems for their success, their happiness, et cetera. And I loved doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, over time, I really wanted to be able to, I don't, I guess the right way to say it is not scale back how much I work, because every time I try that, I just fill it in <laughs> with something else, but to change how I was working, when I was working, et cetera. And starting my own consulting company really allowed me to do that. Um, I still have to be careful not to take on too much work, not to work all of the time. You know, those are just ways that I approach the world and nobody's going to manage them but me. So I have to step up to the plate on that. But I will say it allowed me, I had never written a book before I started my consulting company. Like it, I was just always too busy. I was always doing a ton of things. And so a large multi-year project like that, mm. that might or might not ever benefit someone else. Mm. That wasn't something that I could embrace. And starting the consulting company, having a few more degrees of freedom gave me a little bit more uh, wiggle room to try something that I might not be able to exactly describe how my doing it might help other people. Mm. Maybe I just want to write this book. I intend for it to be helpful. I hope it will be helpful. I'm pretty sure it'll be helpful. But if it's not, then it's still okay that I did it as long as I enjoyed it, even mm. if it appears to do. So I think for me, I reached a point in my career where I think I recognized that my, my value to our community was um, really trying to put some ideas out there and guidance mm. and resources that would help others do their jobs well mm-hmm. and rather than continuing to do the job myself um and so it's it was kind of a scary decision you know i had always been i you know not only, i'd always had a job in fact often multiple jobs <laughs> you know um and so to be in a situation where it was just going to be me and like kind of jump off the cliff, right? Like I think I have something useful to offer and I'm going to try to offer it. And um, and hopefully people will think that's something worth having. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's scary. And, you know, I know some of your podcast is probably a lot of your listeners are entrepreneurs mm-hmm. in some ways. And I've always been entrepreneurial. But this is probably one of the bigger risks that I took. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to leave this position mm-hmm. and slowly build that one mm-hmm. rather than I'm going to go from working a job and a half, two jobs to working a new job that I know will be full time and then maybe gradually wean myself off of the old jobs, which had been my pattern before. Yeah. Wow. I, 
how does that like how would a a business owner say an ABA practice owner maybe someone who's considering selling their practice but has been at it for 5 10 15 20 years however long like how do you decide like what's the next right thing for me yeah i feel scary like you said jumping off a cliff right yeah and i think you know the same thing is true um and i've seen this now a few times with people who build software and then sell that software, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you build something, you get out, you sell it. That's not uncommon today. And it maybe used to be a little bit more uncommon, but it's really kind of a lot of the way um, business and industry works these days. So for me, there were a couple of things. And I actually do a lot of coaching about this that notion of whether you're going to kind of stay within the same field, but shift jobs, shift careers, shift emphasis, somehow keep it new. Like to me, you have to be able to describe what you are giving up Hmm. and what you expect to get from the other thing. Otherwise you'll only make a change if you're miserable. Hmm. Right. I just got to get away from this. And if you make decisions based only on that, you could end up jumping to something that is not really an improvement, maybe even worse, but Hmm. just in different ways that you didn't expect before. Mm -hmm. But if you can kind of, again, it's always a good time for a list. (laughs) (laughs) But but if you can really reflect on, you know, what are the things that I really like about this that I'm going to miss? And that was a super long list for me. And part of what I had to do was figure out how I would keep some approximation of Mm. those things in my new opportunity. So I loved working with our clinical teams. I loved training them. I loved you know, kind of helping them become better leaders. So I kept all of that mm-hmm. in my organization. Um, but there were some other things. And until I could make the list of if I didn't have these current constraints, I might try this or I might do that. Even like I might take a nap on a Tuesday afternoon if I don't have anything to <laughs> have you. Like, you know, it's okay to put a wide array of those Mm. things on your list, like you've got to know both sets of that Mm. in order to really build a meaningful next thing. Mm. And because for so many of us, our, our work experiences, they constitute a lot of our social interactions. They are what, you know, a lot of our intellectual activity, a big chunk of our time. And I think certainly, you know, when you are, you know, in this position of a business owner and you've really built something from scratch, like you're probably pretty used to a lot of stuff and a really engaging environment you know, it could be that what you want to do is go from that to just total downtime. But I think for most people, what it's almost, I don't know, some people, it's like, there's this list of, you know, I had these ideas over the last Mm -hmm. 
four years, mm. but I just didn't feel like I had the time, the resources, the discretion to pursue them. For example, you know, I can remember us having conversations at Trumpet about just not loving that you build something really cool that could help the field, but you got to be careful about who else knows it. And I can remember when we mm. published some of our OBM articles together in research mm. journals, you're a published scientist, <laughs> sir. I love that. Um, you know, that was something that I advocated for, even with our board. Mm. Uh, you know, we're, we built something cool. It will not shine a negative light on us to share it. It will shine a positive light. And anyone who wants to use it has got to do the hard work. And already that cuts out 80% of people. Exactly. Um, That notion of like access to Mm. the information, the value, the wisdom, the services, um, you know, that's a big part of why I have always published, Mm -hmm. you know, is get the word out. If I figured something out and I bet someone else is trying to figure this out too, let's try to get that information out there. And it seems to me that with Element, you are doing a lot of that with lessons that you've learned over the years at Trumpet and also at Ascend about uh, managing Mm -hmm. um, ABA provider organizations. ABA practice owners, are billing and insurance issues getting you down? Well, let me tell you, Element RCM is your answer. Element provides world-class revenue cycle management services, contracting, credentialing, authorizations, billing, and more. Element's your partner, so you can focus on what you love to do, providing the highest quality services to your families and clients. Element's a preferred partner of the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence, and its founders have nearly 20 years of experience owning and operating successful ABA organizations. They understand you. They know that every dollar counts, that integrity is everything. Element works with any practice management system. And Element's not a vendor, they're your partner. So find out more and take a free revenue cycle assessment at elementrcm.ai. Um, I, it's, I, it is, this, this comes back to one of my favorite quotes by Isaac Newton, who said something to the effect of like, you know, if, if I've achieved anything, it's because of the, you know, I stood on the shoulders of giants and, um, and this is similar to the, the mentor tree of paying it forward that like, if I, um, I want to be, I want my organizations to be the shoulders on which the next generation of ABA providers can stand, um, and know what, um, uh, values aligned organizations committed to quality, committed to serving all families of all socioeconomic status. Um, like if, if that can happen, then awesome. And Hey, let's do it in something super unsexy, right? <laughs> like, but, but critically important in the <laughs> revenue cycle and collecting cash and working with insurance companies on all those, um, super fun things. I know that, uh, um, you know, most, uh, most practices don't want to work with, but it, it feels like a, a paying it forward moment. Um, yeah. and, uh, and it's really hard to run an ABA provider organization. The landscape has changed so dramatically 
And there are, I think, a lot of people who, uh, like me, were trained uh, in the clinical background to know how to do the thing. And then you end up uh, running uh, businesses about the thing and really needing to understand some of those higher level business dynamics. Yeah. And um, I sure didn't learn that in grad school. <laughs> you know, but that said, if you are going to be doing this, you've got to you've got to at least learn the basics. You know, I don't have an MBA. I never will. But I have to know the basics well enough. I had to. I had to learn them when I was running an organization. And now I've got to be able to coach some of my clients through an understanding of how these different variables that are clinical in nature, operational in nature, drive financial in nature. Um, and that you do, you've got to pay attention to that yeah. if you want a healthy organization. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it, it's so true. And I mean, our, in my mind, it's getting harder and harder to run an ABA practice. And I, I, I don't know. And I'd love, do you have like thoughts on like, what is it about, um, and, and, and clearly COVID right. Has, has not made things any easier, but what makes it so hard and, and what can owners do to, um, uh, to run a successful practice? Well, you know, um, I think, and many of your listeners may disagree with me, but that's okay. Cause I'm the one with the microphone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think part of what makes it hard is the growth trajectory. Mm. Like you're barely good at doing this at this size and you need to be double that size mm. and you need to triple that size. And, um, and it's what I sometimes think of as pressured growth. Mm. So there are a lot of new influences in the field where they are bringing in a lot of equity and the way they're going to get that equity back is to grow fast and steady fast. And that requires people and training and expertise and it takes a long time to get good at this. And so there's so many ill effects that are being driven by this drastic growth and mm -hmm. the, the workforce pressures that go along with that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think the other thing that makes it hard is that um Lots of people don't have the right partners. Hmm. And, you know, when you're at the top, when you're a CEO, a COO, a managing director, whatever you call yourself. Uh, when I was at Trumpet, we had two managing directors and an executive director. And, um, you know, we were the boss of different things, so to speak. But we were all being the boss of each other and holding each other accountable in different ways. But. If you don't have in your organization a balance of real, meaningful, influential clinical expertise, and the majority of people in our field are quite junior. Mm -hmm. So 
but they're in positions where they, <laughs> you know, I didn't get to that position until I was 25 years into my career. Mm -hmm. I had a long time to get good at things. Now people are hitting that point at three, four, five years post-certification. Mm. Like, I mean, that's just, and again, it's part of that rapid growth trajectory yeah. that creates weird pressures, but you've got to have a balance and an integration and a partnership of real operational and business knowledge and real clinical knowledge. And those two parts have to be able to talk to each other mm -hmm. uh, openly, honestly, directly, yeah. because there are things that you might do operationally that are going to really run afoul of good clinical quality and mm -hmm. potentially the other way around. And you don't know what you don't know, mm -hmm. but you've got to constantly put yourself in situations with someone you trust who's going to catch the rest. So for many of my clients, you know, some of them are business people as mm -hmm. CEOs and they want me to be their high level clinical advisor. They have a clinical team, but mm -hmm. I've just been around and doing this longer mm -hmm. and, and have maybe a better understanding of some of the operational and financial metrics than their current clinical leaders. Mm. You know, having that partnership and like really being able to speak openly and honestly um, to your partners about hard things, like if you don't have that, it is lonely and you're gonna screw it up. I feel so fortunate that when I was at Trumpet, like, Maybe I should have been scared that I was could have been fired. But like <laughs> if I really believed it and thought it was important, I was going to say it yeah. and it was likely to be heard. And that doesn't mean every decision was going to go exactly the way uh, I thought it should. But that notion of I absolutely had equally as valuable a voice as mm -hmm. the MBA business folks that um that I worked with so I think that's part of not only what sometimes makes it hard but also what makes it easier mm. if you do have that if you do have that trust in a partner and if if you genuinely look for someone with like the complementary skill sets right which which yeah. again, it comes back to like there's a, a vulnerability in that and I think as human beings we always look for people who are like us right that's just Part of being a tribe right or part of being part of a tribe um and so it it um having those complementary skill sets uh, it feels critically important to letting the best idea in the room win right um as opposed to getting group think or otherwise yeah absolutely you know i um um you imagine I was so fortunate to, to ride your coattails. Um, in addition to everything else you're doing at Trumpet, you uh, you you published all kinds of research, um, and and I still reflect on like when did Linda sleep. But that aside, what are the what are the research? After articles? I practice my French, <laughs> right after after the French, um, yeah, the, like one of the the articles was um, uh, was on uh, a caseload management support system. Yeah. Um, why did you feel like it was important to to write that article? And what was your aha moment as you reviewed the results from it? Yeah, you know, I 
love that article. And um, again, that was intended to share some, we started figuring out how to solve some of these problems. And I think, um, you know, that aha moment was seeing so many BCBAs that had difficulty meeting all of the demands of their um, position, all the responsibilities for all of their clients. It was not a rare occurrence and kind of thinking through like, well, how in the world is this happening? And part of that is none of that gets covered in a a behavior analysis master's program. And, um, and yet there were people who succeeded. And so like what makes these ones so successful and those ones not so much. And it's not necessarily the content area. It really is what we might think of as information and understanding and mm-hmm. some of those pivotal professional skills. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, organization, time management, managing yourself and your behavior mm-hmm. and the consequences. And, you know, if nobody else is looking and presenting consequences, like the way manage them yourself, <laughs> you know, know that if you write these programs, it's going to, um, mm-hmm. you know, enhance that client's learning or what have you. But probably like every organization, we had people who were just stellar rock stars and people who really struggled and struggled even when a kind, understanding supervisor was really trying hard to support them. Mm. You know, one of the strategies that kind, understanding supervisors sometimes use, and the data actually bore this out, but I got curious about, you know, I wonder if being ineffective doesn't result in a lower and lower caseload and being effective results in a higher and higher caseload. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem all that equitable either. You know, we could argue what's equal, equitable, that sure. kind of thing, but you know, you don't want to, you don't want to crush your rock stars. Um you know, um, you want to give everyone a reasonable allocation of responsibilities and feel good about the fact that they're going to be able to honor that because clients are mm-hmm. on the other end of the impact of the, those efforts. And so taking that idea of, you know, if this happens repeatedly, there's a pattern. There is something to be understood because it's human behavior. Yep. And that's what I do for a living is understand human behavior. So we took that idea of functional assessment. Let's figure out the why and then drive supports. That's why it's the case of management support system right. is we develop this assessment that would then drive the supports rather than just, well, I'll give you a lower caseload or I'll try a few things. I should know exactly what to try because I looked at all of the most Mm -hmm. variables. So for me, um, the fact that we needed to do that study and we needed Mm -hmm. to figure out was my first like, oh my gosh, 
I can't think everybody is going to jump in and be able to do it as well as I would do it. I have been doing this a long time. I've got to figure out what parts are hard and what things are barriers, particularly for more junior people. In, Mm -hmm. In our sample, we also had some more seasoned people, but everything's harder when you're just getting started. So we looked at main categories and man, it was an aha moment of people who were struggling literally did not know that. I mean, like could not tell you the ramifications or the potential ramifications Mm. of getting that report in late after an auth had expired or X, Y, Z related to um, commercial billing or even Mm -hmm. how it affected their supervisor when it's like, okay, this is due tomorrow. I now have to stay up all night and read this report and what have you. Um, So just information and understanding, like we told them, (laughs) yes, but however it is that Mm -hmm. we told them, they did not have a meaningful understanding of what the expectations were, how much it varied by payer, complicated. Um, so that was an aha moment, like, whoo, how do we swing the neck on that? It seemed like we already told them five times, but let's find a new way, a better way to tell them. And then that notion of just overall organization and time management, mm-hmm. like yeah. you can see that coming like a freight train, right? Mm-hmm. Like, ooh, what are the chances you're going to forget something or drop a ball? And it, it, it's not about like a given person is more organized than the other person. Like, look how lucky you got born that way. <laughs> we behave to organize ourselves and not everybody is visibly using those strategies. That's right. Um, and then the other big area was consequences, mm-hmm. not understanding for many people who were maybe about to lose their job not understanding what their level of performance was in comparison to the majority Mm. of people in their job. And also like not understanding what the consequences were when they kind of let time evaporate or Mm. if you use some of their discretionary time for tasks that were several levels below the highest and best mm. use of their time because their primary job should be the highest and best use of their time and kind of spending too much time doing other things um, that someone else could do right mm-hmm. Not knowing to delegate can jam you up in a way that leaves you incapable of getting to all of the things that are critical that only you can do. I mean, it's so simple, almost and powerful, like write clear expectations 
and make sure that the person understands them, the right consequences, and then, um, you know, just effective time management, or it's almost like priority management. And in fact, the, the, the other exercise um, I, I know I've done with you many times that I learned from you is the rocks, pebble, sand, right? Like around time management of like, what are you going to, if you want to get all these rocks, pebbles, sand in an in empty jar, what are you going to put in first? The sands? And the no, you put the biggest stuff in first and then you filter in the the the, the rock, the pebbles, and then you let the sand. You better have a plan, you have a have a plan plans, for yeah. how you're going to put it in rather than the first thing you see gets dumped in. Absolutely. I spend so much time with people evolving their personal systems. I love the getting things done system. There are mm -hmm. other ones out there, but, it, but just about... How are you going to prioritize and plan your use of time and know where everything is? You've got to know everything that you need to do and just about how long it's going to take mm -hmm. in order to get it all done in the designated amount of time. It's a great point because schools, undergrad, high schools, they're not teaching personal management systems. Um, and um, this is just part of, I don't know, adulting, I guess, is like, yeah. and if you can't get like the personal side, uh, right, it's going to be really hard to get the professional side of what you do, right? So um, true. Pivotal professional skills, also known as adulting. Adulting. <laughs> I like the operational definition of <laughs> professional skills. I, Linda, throw one question at me. Make me answer on the spot. Okay. What is something that you've learned through your relationship with your lovely wife, Kim, that you think makes you a better leader in your professional setting? Compassion and patience. Yeah. She's I, really um, wonderful. She's extraordinary. Um, and, you know, we've known each other, been together for 20 years, married for 12 years. Um, she's a lactation consultant. She actually, she was a, a management consultant and then she evolved her career to work with a, a therapeutic weight loss programs for teenage girls. And then most recently got her lactation consulting, um, her IBCLC. And, um, uh, she has the most, not that I can actually sit in on, um, you know, the sessions that she does with moms. Um, but, um, she's the definition of like listening well and empathizing and being gentle in how you help change behavior um, because it doesn't have to be a bullhorn <laughs> to change behavior, right? Good, goodness. And if you think about what she's doing, she's probably helping many new moms, even exactly. if you're not a first time mom, you're newly a mom mm -hmm. and you're exhausted. And, mm -hmm. you know, if it's not going as well as you could, you feel like the single most important responsibility that you have as a human is like you're swinging and missing or not yeah. getting it right. And that notion of gentleness and empathy and try this. Mm -hmm. And even if you feel demoralized and that it might not work, part of her role is to help someone have the energy to be able to try. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Because so, parenting doesn't come with a, a handbook, right? Or breastfeeding. We all just assume it's going to happen. And it's hard. It's really freaking hard. The whole world is hard um, until you know how to do it. And then some of those things are still hard. It's still hard. That's right. That's right. It's true. And then, so you're a CEO and you're saying compassion and patience 
are what has been so helpful. Now, that's salient about her. You meet her and you experience that. It's just so noticeable about how she exists as a human. I feel like the same thing is true of you. Like, mm. just, you know, how are you compassionate at work? Especially, I bet you've had to be compassionate a lot because at least one of your companies been has been launched since COVID, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, I, I, I think it's one of the most important parts of leadership that doesn't get talked about. Um, and that is like good leadership, good supervision, coaching, mentorship, whatever we call it. Uh, it starts with caring about people. Um, and that just feels like what our world needs a little bit more of these days. But, um, you know, I, I, I'm not talking about creating like dual relationships, but mm -hmm. you got to care about what's happening with that person and understand if they're bringing their whole self to work and you're creating environments of psychological safety, you're going to get to know the stuff that the good and the bad um, that's happening. And um, you're not going to be their therapist, but you can care. Um, yeah. and, and I think that's, um, I know that's always felt to me like the starting point for then wanting the best for them and helping to it, helping them see where their career path is, how they're part of the bigger why of an organization or mission. So that's how, that's how I felt. Fantastic. Hmm. Thank you for answering my question. Oh, well, thank you for that. That is a deeply insightful and probing question. I love it. Well, what's, Linda, what's one thing every ABA business owner should start doing and one thing they should stop doing? I think one thing they should start doing is thinking about getting their whole organization to think about what unique skills do I have to help my people hmm. and use those because in the absence of really thinking about that, we kind of tend to micromanage or maybe do someone's job for them. Like the unique skill that mm. you have is not that you could enter the data in the spreadsheet. <laughs> right. that, that may be a skill and, and yay right. for having it. But in terms of, you know, a unique skill that will help them, your job isn't to go through and correct their spreadsheet. You might have to do that. Your job is to help them be more capable and confident and accurate mm -hmm. in their own work. And the unique skills and experiences that you have are maybe that you've done it before. You've yep. done it accurately. You know some tips and tricks. Well, don't use the tips and tricks. Teach the tips and tricks. Mm -hmm. That's a way of thinking that I think is really helpful for any leader, um, definitely CEO. And then I think what they should stop doing is focusing too closely on one problem in their organization. One of the things about being the CEO is giving yourself the view and perspective to see above things and to see how they connect. Mm -hmm. So I kind of view it. I don't know. Here's an analogy I like. Let's say you could get a bird's eye view of all of the interstates and highways in the United States. Mm -hmm. You would have a better understanding of where the numbers come from. Mm -hmm. right? 
these yeah. ones are named that way. And this would be the better way to get here mm -hmm. or there. You still need people on the roads, driving the cars, getting the things. And they need to deal with their stretch of road. They need to be capable drivers. Mm -hmm. They need to know where they're going. But they don't necessarily need to be able to zoom out to the same level as you. Yeah. So if the CEO, it gets too in the weeds and this mm -hmm. happens, I think a lot of times when you're not giving yourself that time and headspace mm -hmm. and um, you're stressed and you're you've not got your organization and time management strategies yeah. in place yeah. and getting pulled down into the weeds for this and this and this, the only person who could have the bird's eye view doesn't. Mm -hmm. It's you can't give away the opportunity to do the thing that only you can do. And you give it away very often by getting a little too in the weeds and stepping down too many levels. Mm -hmm. I'm a doer. Trash can needs <laughs> empty and I'm going to empty it. You know, whatever it is, yeah. I'm going to do that. But I've got to monitor if every time I show up, the, the the trash can needs emptying, I need to be stepping into my role, talking to operations about, hey, let's go ahead and think about changing the schedule with our yep. maintenance, that kind of thing. Um, so the stop doing is getting too in the weeds. Yeah. And, you know, it's like, oh, I, I want to grow my organization. So you focus only on census. Well, don't yeah. do that. <laughs> <laughs> like you, you've got to really think of it as you're kind of flying the plane mm -hmm. at higher level. You got to monitor all of the right metrics and mm -hmm. not get too caught up on any of the little ones so that you lose sight of of you know, how you're going to really get where you're going. Mm, that's an elegant analogy. Like the idea of you're playing this air traffic control and, 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 and countering this instinct either potentially to micromanage or maybe more likely this is something you love doing. So you just want to dive in deep. I was like, stay up there and use that term. I trust you with your team. Hey, I trust you. And I'm going to be here to chat through things and, and guide and, you know, we can brainstorm, problem solve anything, but I trust you. Yeah, um, absolutely. So. Linda, where can people find you online? Uh, lbehavioral.com. So my company is LeBlanc Behavioral Consulting. Website, lbehavioral.com. Right on. Well, are you ready for the hot take questions? I am. Here we go. Okay. All right, Linda, you're on your deathbed. What's the one thing you want to be remembered for? I think... I hope people remember me as someone caring who is willing to help. Hmm. What's your most important self-care practice? Well, I love bubble baths. <laughs> <laughs> I really do. I love bubble baths. I've got like, you know, the bath bombs, the fizzies. And just that environment of like a candle, low light. Like I have got to be active in how I wind myself down mm. because I'm a super energetic kind of person. Mm -hmm. and so for me, 
I have to manage myself so that I can sleep well, because when I'm fatigued, I'm not as patient. I'm not as kind. I'm not as alert. I'm more distractible. So that being able to like chill out, Mm. whether it's cup of tea, bubble bath and sleep well, that is critical for my well-being. You know, can I tell you something that I don't think I've ever shared with you? I was never a candle person until two years ago. I was in a mastermind with you and Dr. John Austin that y'all were running and got this awesome care package with a bunch of cool stuff as part of it. And one thing was the candle. And I was like, what the hell am I going to do with this? Well, I'll tell you what. <laughs> what do you do with a candle? What do, you, what do you do with a candle? I mean, this is like 2022 for 2020, whatever it was for crying out loud. Well, what do you know? I opened it and on a lark, I lit it. And two years later, every time I'm in my office, I have a candle that's going. And it just, with my little Zen waterfall, puts yeah. me into that. Maybe that's your bubble bath place. And that, that, that's Absolutely. my place. It's, I love it. You know, it's those little things we can do to change our environment. Mm. Um, you know, like, hey, I help people solve problems. Problems are going to be coming at me. But I can be in charge of like how something smells or a (laughs) flickering light or just some of those little things. Mm. Oh, yay. I'm so glad you, I gave you that candle. I'm a a convert. I'm a convert. (laughs) Well, that's what you're going to get for your next gift as well. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What's your favorite song? I don't know that I have one. I, I will say not to, to bring us down, but I tend to like bands more than songs and, Mm. You know, my high school, college, even grad school days where there was a time of grunge and the Foo Fighters have been really one of my for a very long time uh, bands and a a recent loss of their amazing drummer. And Mm -hmm. uh, but pretty much anything Foo Fighters um, is good for me. Oh, I love love James Brown. Oh, James Brown's amazing. My favorite, I love the Foo Fighters too. And Dave Grohl is just, uh, he could do no wrong in my mind. You know, my favorite Foo Fighters story is there were, um, uh, this was, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years ago, but a mine collapsed in Australia and there were a bunch of miners who were trapped. And so of course, rescue crews come and they start furiously digging. Um, they finally broke through and made contact and they said, what, what can we get you? And the miner said, we need a tin of dip and a Foo Fighters CD. (laughs) (laughs) I kid you not. The the good news is for Yeah, I couldn't make it. Bye. Well, so they they were all rescued. And guess what? Dave Grohl and the Foo Fighters flew to Australia and played a show for them. Does that not give you goosebumps? It totally does. And that is so consistent for the kinds of things that they do, right? Yes, um, absolutely. They're so amazing at what they do, but really also they're just people. Mm-hmm. Human beings, right? Making the world a little better. Yeah. Well, if you could give your 18-year-old self one piece of advice, what would it be? 
well, you know, one of the, I don't think the letter was written to my 18 year old self, but one of the things in the supervision book is, is an exercise to write a letter to your younger self. Mm. And um, the younger self that I wrote it to was kind of like me as a, I'm in grad school and then I'm a young professor. And I'm trying to figure out how to be a supervisor without crushing the soul, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, but I think if I could talk to my 18 year old self, I would probably let her know that it's okay to slow down. Mm. Yeah. It's okay to slow down. You'll well, still be successful. Exactly. <laughs> slow down. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you could only wear one style of footwear, what would it be? That matters a lot. So I need to ask some clarifying questions <laughs> before you impose such strict limitations <laughs> on me because shoes are important. Mm -hmm. I think the outfit starts with the shoes. Your comfort starts with the mm -hmm. shoes. If you might need to go playing on the floor with a kiddo, you better have the right shoes. Mm -hmm. um, I So by style of footwear, do I have to be like, if you want to know the exact shoe, if I could only wear one shoe for the rest of my life, I can give you the answer for that. If you want to know shoemaker, I can give you the answer for that. Mm. In terms of style of footwear, it would be a flat or low heel funk mm. dress shoe. Like. Yes. One. Oh, that is super cute. It's super cute. It's a heart. You can see it's a low heel, but look what shape the heel is. Ah. Uh. It's, it's the, the heel is in the shape of a heart and they look comfortable. Um, yeah. There's sort of these, you know, little, little heels and I don't know, they're shiny, but there's also a um, design of what looks like home plate. Yeah. In that heart. So that's double cool. I know. Check out YouTube. Uh, what you, cause you've got to see this too. This is sweet. Yeah, pretty much. You should, you know, take care of the stuff that makes you happy. Shoes make me happy. <laughs> I love it. And you know what, Linda, you make me happy. So thank you so much. You. Big hugs. Big hugs. You're virtually now. I missed um, you so much. And it was wonderful to spend the time with you. So thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for all you're doing for me, for our field. Um, I appreciate you, Linda. I appreciate you, Jonathan. What up, listeners? Hey, I got something for you. If you like my Building Better Businesses in ABA podcast, you're going to love the Behavioral Observations podcast with Matt Sicoria. So I recently met Matt at ABAI, and let me tell you, I was just an instant fanboy. Matt's the real deal. His pod is all about stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. So session 191 on his pod is on the behavior analysis of lying. That's right, lying. How awesome is that? Who does that? He also talks social skills, ACT, FAs, and so much more. His guests include Greg Hanley, Jonathan Tarbox, and other legendary names in our field. And as a BCBA, you can even get CEU credits through Behavioral Observations. You can find Matt and the Behavioral Observations podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast channel. Enjoy, friends. Thanks for listening to Building Better Businesses in ABA podcast. Stay tuned for our next exciting episode. 
In the meantime, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We value your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on social media at elementrcm.ai.